Hi, and welcome to Free the Geek FM. This is the podcast about the business of freelancing as a software developer, a technical writer, content producer, and all-round PHP lover. Well, hello and welcome to episode two of Free the Geek FM. This week, I'm really excited. Okay, I'm always excited. But this week, the reason why I'm excited, amongst many, is that I have on the show my first guest, and that's Mr. Paul M. Jones. Mr. Paul M. Jones of the Aura Project fame, and many other things. Before I introduce my guest, I think I just wanted to have a, a bit of a chat about sort of what's been going on since the last episode. On the whole, I think the podcast went well. The feedback I've been given has been really, really positive. I, th- I think this whole voice of podcasting, I don't think it's gone to my head, but I do like it. I do feel more comfortable with it since the first recording. And what I said in the first, in the first episode about maybe doing it on a month, it, honestly, it feels like it's a bit long, like, like a month's a bit too far between. So I'm pondering with the idea, pondering meaning I'll probably do it, of having something, you say, once every two weeks. Because I think once every two weeks, it gives enough time to, you know, to do the normal day-to-day work, freelancing, to, but also to think of, you know, new ideas, to line up guests, to have content to talk, worth talking about, but not sort of feel like it's too far apart or it's rushed. So tentatively moving to two weeks per podcast instead of the month format that I previously said I was going to do. All right. So what's been happening since last time? Well, actually, it's really been quite busy since last time. Uh, there's been a couple of trips away. There's been some new updates in terms of courses and work. And as always, there's been a couple of good books read. But let's start at the top. So, okay, it was the weekend before last. I was, I had the good fortune of being at the inaugural PHP South Coast Conference over in beautiful Portsmouth. I think it was thanks to James Tickham that I actually went. Because I first said, oh, I first tweeted some time ago saying, I'm, I'm thinking about submitting to conferences. And so on Twitter comes up James and he says, I know this great conference that you should submit to. And I didn't put one and one together at the time and realized that James was the, James was the organizer. Okay. So I didn't actually submit to the conference. I do apologize. But after a bit more conversation, he said, you know, why don't you come over? And I thought, oh, maybe it's a dear, you know, with, with flights and accommodation and, you know, the sundry expenses and all that sort of stuff. But James persisted and I thought, okay, all right, I'll at least, I'll at least check it out and have a look at what it costs. Turns out, yeah, it was a, it was a few hundred pounds, a few hundred euros. Uh, I won't say exactly how much, but on the whole, you know, it wasn't really that dear. And I must say, it's one of those things you look at the price at the time and think, ah, uh, should I, shouldn't I? But then after you've gone, after you've done it, there's no buyer's remorse whatsoever. It was a really, really fantastic weekend. I must say that there were so many highlights, whether it was the keynote from Cal Evans at the start, the talks that I went to, or as I said in a post on my blog, uh, I believe it was last week, it was getting to know so many people. And as I said in that post, which I'll have a link to in the show notes, I wanted to say a big thank you to two wonderful people that I met, not to exclude others, those two people being Cal Evans and Jeremy Coates. Cal Evans the voice of the PHP community, someone I've wanted to meet for a really long time in person. And Jeremy of Magma Digital Fame or PHP Code Monkey. It was, it was great to talk to both of them. And they, you know, I, I went up to both 
And I said, hi, I'm Matt. I'm, you know, sorry to interrupt if you're doing something, but hey, I just wanted to say hello. And both of them look at me, they look at my name badge and go, oh, you know, it was like penny drops going, oh, this is who you are. You know, we've, we've talked like on Twitter and on email and we had the, the most wonderful of conversations. They both shared so much, you know, with me that, you know, those things, it's, it's, you really can't put a price on it. It's just gold. Whether I was just carried away with the fact of meeting them in person or, you know, just that information that it's, it's so easy to get in person. I mean, there was, there was a lot of, of business talk from Jeremy, things about, you know, how to, how to structure what I do, how, it, what it's like running a business and, and working with people and bringing out the best in people. And I mean, that really reinforced for me why I really like him, that, that sense of seeing the best in people and working to bring it out in them. And for Cal, I mean, it was, what can I say? He's like, you know, he's Mr. Community. And if you've been, been in PHP and you haven't had your, your head stuck in the sand, you know about Cal and, I'd heard from Paul when we first started talking that he's a really genuine human being and watching his keynote, you know, that came through and then talking with him, it's, it's, it's definitely, definitely true. So I don't want to seem like I am putting them on pedestals and, and idolizing them. I get too much. I, okay. I do a little. Um, so I'll stop there and I won't kind of sound like maybe this is also a, a sense of, uh, not false modesty, uh, sort of false adulation. You know, they're, they're really wonderful people. It was a pleasure to meet them. And I'm looking forward to the next time I can meet them in person. Now, as for the other parts of that weekend, it was meeting so many other, so many beautiful people, so many wonderful people. But I'll keep it short because I write up a lot about my feelings about the weekend in a post. I believe it was last week again. It was the three games of Laser Quest. I mean, that was amazing. It, it, you know those things that you think about at the time and think, ah, yeah, I might do that. And then people around you say, come on, we have to do this. You know, like we'll play just one game and you go, okay, just one, just one. And then I'll go do something else. Okay. One game turned into two, which turned into three, which were three rounds of, we were perspiring. My legs ached for three days afterwards. There was jumping up and kind of diving down as much as you can with a laser quest pack on your back. Um, it was awesome. There's so many people who, you get in environments and you just relax and you don't kind of think you have to walk up to them and say, hi, how are you? You're not stiff and, and formal. You just, Hey, how you doing? And you kind of know each other going, Oh, you shot me 25 times. Oh, you beat me. You know, you edged me out of, you know, the sixth spot in the overall leader tally, you know, oh, I'll get you next time. So for a whole host of reasons, it was, it was just, it was great. So with those two things done, there's a little bit more to go before I get in to announce my guest. Two things that I, I'm, I'm totally excited about. Okay, I'm excited about everything, but hey, life's too short to not be. So those two things are, and I don't think I said it on the show last week, but if I did, I'll just say it again. Sorry, not last week, last time, is that I am, I have the absolute good fortune of speaking and giving two talks at PHP World in Washington, D.C. this November. I don't have the dates off the top of my head, but they'll be in the show notes. I'm giving two talks. One is on day two, which is about documenting and promoting your open source project so that I can't guarantee you'll be successful, but that you will, if nothing else, greatly increase the odds of it being successful, of it being picked up, of it being used, 
and not being something that maybe just your grandma and your best mates kind of use just to be nice to you. And then the second talk is something maybe closer to home for me, being being that I do a lot with Zen Framework, is showing you how to do simple, reusable, maintainable, and highly performant, not to, not to forget secure generation of SQL using the ZenDB library. The, uh, the promotion talk is on day two of the conference, and the ZenDB talk is on day three. If you need any more information, go to world.phparch.com. I think it's forward slash speakers. I'm not totally sure, but I will have the link in the show notes. Um, these are my first talks that I've actually ever given at a conference. I'm not sure if I should say that, but I mean, I think it wouldn't take much to find out that they are. I'm really excited. I'm kind of nervous. Not too much now. I think as the time gets closer, I'll get more so. I do want to give a bit of a plug. I want to say thank you to Lorna Jane and to Stefan for their time so far in listening to me, sort of cons- uh, not consoling me, but saying, look, here's how we got started. Here's our tips. Here's our thoughts on you know how to, how to get started, how to organize yourself. I also want to give a shout out to Troy Hunt. He has some excellent posts, which Gary Hocken had has uh, pointed me towards. He's also given some good tips um, and link suggestions. So thank you to Troy as well and to Gary. I'm hoping I do a good job of this. I'm hoping I don't get up on stage and sort of stare like a deer into the headlights and go, ah, uh, really not sure what to do. And then, okay, right, I found myself. I don't think that'll be the case. But anyway, if you're thinking of going to PHP World, and I can convince you to go, please, buy your tickets, go, turn up to the talks, at least one, that'd be great. Ideally, don't sit in the front row. Okay, if you do, just kind of don't laugh at me. Um, yeah, and it'd be great to see you there. If not, naturally, uh, everything will be online, and, you know, you can get everything online. If you do go, of course, join in for feedback, but I'll talk about this further and closer to the time. Now, two more things, and we're almost ready for the guest, is that I can now say that I am an upcoming, not an actual yet, an upcoming plural site author. I passed the audition, which... Personally, I wasn't sure that I would, you know, sort of at least without a lot of sort of toing and froing and can you edit this and change that. I have submitted my course outline. I won't say much about it. I will allude to the fact that it has something to do with DB and SQL. So I guess maybe it's not too hard to guess as to what I'm using. Um, that's currently going through their review evaluation process at the moment. But I've been given the okay to say that, you know, that they've got it for review and that I am an potential upcoming author. Um, I don't want to overstate the fact. So as soon as it's been okayed upon and you agree and everything's in the works and they say, yeah, you can now say you are a plural site author. I will definitely mention that in the relevant podcast. So I'm very excited to be doing that. Okay. And the final thing is that I'm giving a lightning talk at Nomad PHP on the 20th of August. And here it is in a nutshell. The talk title is What Makes PHP Storm Great for PHP Development? And my abstract is PHP Storm 9 has a veritable cornucopia of features devoted to enhancing developer productivity and saving you time and effort. From hassle-free debugging to the numerous inspections and intentions, this talk will rapidly run you through a range of features you're likely to run on, that you're likely to use, sorry, on a daily basis. That's a bit of a tongue twister, but 
it's something that I'm really keen to give because PHP Storm is something I use, I, I, I swear, almost daily. And all, there's so many little pieces, some, so many little gems, so many features that just help you be productive. And so I'm going to do my best to meaningfully showcase that within 10, okay, possibly a little bit more than 10 minutes. So keep an eye on the Nomad PHP website or the newsletter. I'll have links to those in the show notes. And I really hope that you will be there and then you can give me talk there. Sorry. You can give me feedback on joined in once the links link goes up because I'd really love to know what you think. And also I just want to be a bit of a PHP Storm evangelist because I really like it a hell of a lot. No, I'm not paid to endorse PHP Storm. And here we are at the main part of the podcast, my interview with Mr. Paul M. Jones. All right, before I cut to our interview, which we recorded a few days ago, I'll give you a bit of an introduction to Paul, in case you're not familiar with him. Paul is an internationally recognized PHP expert and has been working in PHP since 1999. He's the author of two books, Modernizing Legacy Applications in PHP and Solving the N plus one problem in PHP. As well as this, he's the lead on the Aura PHP project and has a white paper, The Action Domain Responder Pattern. So without further ado, let's cut to the interview. I hope you enjoy it. It's about one of his favorite books, The Mythical Man Month. All right, so chatting about The Mythical Man Month, um, why that book? Why why that book over, I guess, any number of other books? Why, why does that one stand out the most? Well, the, the, the main reason I that I like a lot, that really stands out for me, is that uh, it was recommended to me by my systems anal- analysis professor when I was in college. Mm-hmm. And in reading it, and I, was, I read it in maybe 2000, what's interesting about this book is that reading it in 2000, the second edition had been written in 1995. The original edition had been written in 1975 about a project that was done in 1965. Mm-hmm. Even at 50 years out, almost all of the things that Fred Brooks, the author, says about the profession of programming, the social and the managerial aspects of it, even 50 years later, all of those things are still true. The technology changes, uh, you know, the specifics of how we do our work changes. You can actually see some of those specifics changing in the book, mm-hmm. uh, you know, looking back, at, you know, again, looking back over 50 years. But Everything else, all the social aspects are exactly the same. That one thing alone uh, is instructive, not just for developers in how to approach their profession, but to instruct them in, in how it used to be and why it's probably not going to change. You know, people haven't changed. Uh, and that, that for me right there is the main reason to, to be reading this book. Secondarily, it is the various lessons that you learn that he talks about uh, that that still apply even fifty years later. Okay, interesting. Yeah, I, I mean, I as, as I was saying earlier, I haven't read all of it yet. I'm only about a quarter of the way through, but it definitely had that that feel for the things you go through aren't necessarily new. Right, uh, and and another thing is that y- you read it. You read the whole thing, you see how what the technology used to be, and you're going to be amazed at how phenomenally well off we are as programmers 50 years later. Uh, a lot of the things that he talks about, simply in terms of the technology, simply are not problems anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a, there's a point at which he talks about uh, there's so first of all, the book is a collection of essays. 
It's not like a single thing of whole cloth, although all the essays interrelate with each other. There's a point near the end of the book after talking about all the problems that go on in software development, you know, these social and managerial issues, and specifically relating to developer productivity, there's an essay called No Silver Bullet where he asks, is there any tech, is there any single technical consideration that looks like it's going to occur in the next 10 years that is going to improve programmer productivity by a factor of 10? Mm-hmm. Uh, the answer is no, and that hasn't, and, and it's still not true. Um, so that the looking back on that, just the vast, the vast wealth that we have available to us, not necessarily from, uh, being more productive as programmers per se, Mm -hmm. but just the fact that computers around so much now, I mean, that, that, that's another huge change, uh, between, between 1965 and now that, uh, that he doesn't that he's not able to address, but that he talks it, that he wasn't able to address in the original, but he's able to address in the, in the, in the, one of the follow-up essays. Okay. So do you, I guess sort of following on from that point and sort of maybe speculating a bit, do you think that with, with the sheer prevalence of computers, do you think that that may have had any, any benefit or really it just, it's, it stayed about even? Oh, uh, it, it's clearly a supreme benefit I mean, let's just, again, let's think about it in terms of 1965 until now. What was going on in 1965? I mean, in the U.S. anyway, uh, I believe Kennedy was, was still in office. Mm-hmm. The, pro- the space program was about halfway through to getting us to the moon. Uh, and it's the Mad Men era. Mm. Now, I want you to think about that. And then think about 1975 when he wrote the book about the 1965 project. Mm-hmm. What was going on in 1975? No internet, no cell phones, no home computers, nothing. 1995, the second edition, think about that for a little bit. Mm. 1994 is when the internet, quote-unquote, was released to the public. Yep. You know, it had been available to academics and military, that kind of thing. So when he wrote the second edition in 1995, um, no iPhone, no internet. Uh, a, a really fast computer then was a, an Intel 386 running at 33 megahertz with maybe 8 megs of RAM and a, and a 250 megabyte hard drive you know it was and then and now 2015 when we've got a computer 2015 the iphone in your pocket has the computing power of the entire apollo program Mm -hmm. from 1965 the things that we have now in 2015 simply were not available for any amount of money in 1965 you could be the richest 10 people in the world and you could not have purchased an internet it wouldn't have happened it wasn't available so Again, the the fact that computers are as widely available as they are is an indi- and, and the fact that we're able to do all of these things with them that or go beyond just looking at cats on the internet, you know, uh, that you're able to, to produce all of these things mm-hmm. that you used to not be able to produce at all, that is a form of wealth that is not, that simply can't be expressed in monetary terms. Uh, so we are, it is my opinion that for whatever problems come along with computers, that we are hugely, vastly, immeasurably better off and more wealthy for having them. Uh, and that was something that was just not predictable in 1965. I mean, I definitely agree. It's, it's uh, I remember, like, this is segueing ever so slightly, but uh, as you said that, uh, for all the money in the world, you, know, you couldn't have created it. It's like, 
always every generation sort of builds on that one prior. And yeah. talking back, I think there was even a story of around the how wealthy that King Henry VIII was, like the wealthiest person in the world. But there was no way, even modest gains in in the century later, that he could have even come anywhere close to. And so, you yep. watch, and then you watch ever increasingly, perhaps cliched, er, the advancements just move so much, you know, so much quicker every time. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you and I. If, if we if we talk about wealth not term in terms merely of money, but in terms of the number of resources available to you and the number of options that you have available to you, any middle class person today is vastly wealthier than Henry VIII was. Mm-hmm. Now they don't have the political power that he did. They don't have the the ability to command others and you know send them to death if they don't like what they're doing. Mm-hmm. But in terms of the the options available to you and the wealth that you have at your disposal, hugely better than Henry VIII was. Def- oh, I couldn't agree more. Um, so I guess, in in, in sort of touching back to to the book, I guess more, more sure. specifically, would you? And maybe it's already been said, really. But would you say it's an absolute must read, or it's sort of in your top set of books? Like where on a on a, on a if you're going to, you know, say, take your career as a, as a software developer seriously, how, you know, how, how high would you put it to the top? I'm, I'm guessing pretty if it, close. If it's, if it's not number one, it's very close. Um, I, I, will, I will go on the record mm-hmm. and say that this one book has been more important to me in terms of how I pursue the profession of programming than any other book. Um, it shows its age. I'm not going to say that it's perfect, mm-hmm. but the, uh, the the few essays in here that are the, the, the several essays in this book mm-hmm. that are still accurate, I think are going to remain accurate for the next 50 or 100 years. Okay. Um, the, the second essay alone, the one on that the book draws its title from on why scheduling go, always goes long, mm-hmm. uh, that, that one alone has been worth and I'm, I'm not exaggerating here. It has been worth the weight of the book itself in gold over the course of my profession. Right. That's, not an, that's not an exaggeration. Wow. It's been hugely helpful to me to be able to see that these patterns exist. Mm-hmm. And not just to see that they exist, but to recognize that they're happening in my own life. And you know, match up my own experience with them. And then to have an answer for people when they say, why is such and such happening? They say, well, it's always been this way. This is why, and here's what you do to mitigate it. Okay. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's been a hugely important book for me. Okay. Um, speaking of those essays, I, I, I'm not sure if I'm actually getting the right one, but it was one, and it talked about, and I may well be getting the right one, where it talked about the, the, the stereotype thing of, okay, we have, we have 10 people. It's got to be done in four months. We don't right. think it's going to make it. So we'll just shove, okay, if, if 10 people. 10 more people. <laughs> we'll put that in, and it'll work. And yep. then it, and it countered that with the with the different structure of saying, no, we'll have very few people who are designing it and saying, mm-hmm. this is how it'll be designed. And as I said, be done by a few people so that communication overhead is, is vastly reduced. And a few people understand it intimately. Yet you have a number of people who can work on actually implementing it. And then how it talked about how you, how you sort of uh, the boundary between those and the strengths and weaknesses of those. Yep. Do you find that 
that kind of approach, that, that better approach? Well, I guess, firstly, do you feel that second approach is the right approach? And secondly, do you feel that it's actually implemented a lot or that the first kind of just, just throw manpower at it, it'll be fixed, is still a prevailing attitude? So the first question is, uh, do, do I like that approach? So I think that's a valid approach. Yeah. Uh, after having done this for a while, mm-hmm. uh, I, I completely agree with Brooks on this. The term that he uses is conceptual integrity. That whatever system you're coming up with, whatever thing it is that you're building, mm-hmm. needs to look like it is the product of a single mind. Okay. The only way to actually do that well is either to have a very, very small number of developers who are very tightly aligned, very closely aligned on how they're going to do everything so that when they work together, you can't tell one developer's work from another. Mm-hmm. Or you have a single developer who is in charge of the sort of the grand design of how, the, how things are going to go. He may additionally have a second one as an assistant and a, a, a lieutenant, if you will, who is a trusted companion, but who is not the primary decision maker. Again, the, 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 the first guy is the, is the main decision maker. Mm-hmm. And then a series of support people who are all specialized and who form a, a, a support group to help that primary developer. Uh, so the, you would start it out by talking about, you know, adding people into the project, hopefully making it go faster. Of course, that doesn't work because of the, the communication overhead. That's chapter two. I've actually got the book in front of me. Mm-hmm. But the organization that we just talked about, the single primary developer with a secondary one there as a sort of a, a sounding board, and then the support team, that's chapter three. That's what he calls the surgical team model. And I will, I will just list it very quickly here. Mm-hmm. Everyone, of course, everyone should read the book. The, there is what he calls the, pri- the surgeon, that is the primary developer, the primary architect behind whatever it is that's going on. Mm-hmm. And he has a co-pilot or a co-surgeon who, uh, who are the actual owners of the system. They're the ones who are in charge of it. They're the ones who make sure it works properly. They're the ones who have to answer for everything. But then, and this is where it gets interesting, they eat. They, they then get, there's an administrator, and the administrator has a secretary mm-hmm. to handle sort of the non-programming aspects of what's going on. There's a documentation editor, and the documentation editor also has a secretary. So while the, while the surgeon and the co-pilot are in charge of preparing the primary documentation, the narrative stuff, Mm-hmm. It's the documentation editor that actually fleshes out, makes it look right, you know, puts it together well. Then we start getting to some things that may not have, and remember, this is written in 1975, about a 1965 project. Mm-hmm. Then we start getting to some things that may not translate directly to now. They kind of do if you squint. There's a, what he calls a program clerk, someone who's in charge of you know, basically doing all the input-output operations mm-hmm. to get things into the system and get them out of the system, yeah. I would translate that as a developer ops kind of person now. Someone who's in charge of maintaining the environment. Someone who's in charge of you know, doing your Vagrant and Docker builds for you so that mm-hmm. you, as the primary developer, don't have to worry about that. Now, there's a toolsmith. Someone who is in charge primarily of writing libraries for the for the main developer to use. Mm-hmm. There is a separate tester who is there as sort of the loyal adversary to keep everyone honest. Uh-huh. And then there's what he calls a language lawyer, uh, someone who knows all the intricacies of whatever language it is you happen to be working in. Yeah. So that's like a 10-person project. And normally, when we think of a 10-person project, we think of 10 developers. Hmm. But there's all this other support stuff that has to happen. And without that, uh, developers end up getting relegated to that. 
Uh, and they're not as effective that way. That's not what they're good at. Um, now, so that's that's the team that he likes. Uh, I have never been on a team like that. I admit that it is immensely appealing to me. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if you actually need all 10 with a distrib- in a distributed work environment like we have now. Some of those... Some of those positions might well be filled by a remote person who's doing them for four or five teams. So, for example, a, a DevOps guy who is building environments could do it for you know four or five developer pairs, uh, or yeah. a tester. You know, might might well you might want to have them dedicated. But a language lawyer could be someone who is uh, again remote and doing language lawyer work for you know several developers at the same time. Mm-hmm. Uh, so again, I like this idea. It intuitively appeals to me. I've never actually been in a project that that works that way. So, but I guess look, looking at, at the book and translating it to today, conceptually, um, the, the model still works. But owing to advances such as the internet and so forth, and I guess flexibility from from companies and, and employers, you can you don't necessarily have to have you know each role dedicated to just one project. As you said, you can you can sort of float them over a series of projects. Yeah. Uh, okay. And it's funny to look at it from a distance because you can see, because again, he was working on, this is a 1975 book written on about a 1965 project. Mm-hmm. He's working on a mainframe with time sharing. You know, so they've got to have everyone physically in the same room and that drives mm. the outcome for that essay. But even with that, the, pro, the, the, the things that are involved in writing programs hasn't changed. You still need the documentation. You still need someone maintaining the environment environment. Mm-hmm. You Correct. still need someone writing tests. You need, still need someone who needs language. So even with those technological changes around sort of in the ecosystem program, mm-hmm. the tasks that are necessary are still the same. So the, so the fundamentals still come into play. And, yep. that, and that structure of, of how, how to organize people, how to organize manpower is, is still whatever, ever as practical as it was then. I, I, I think that is the correct assessment. Yes. Do you feel that, because I, from experience myself, I still, um, perhaps uh, by superficial observation, feel that the former, you know, just, just throw effort at it, it'll fix it, is, is <laughs> yeah. more prevalent. Um, do, you, do you feel that, uh, I guess I'm curious as to what maybe your thoughts are on as to why that might be prevalent. Is it just that this kind of material hasn't been uh, disseminated widely enough, whether people are just perhaps inherently lazy, whether there's a certain pervading perception of just how things are, which isn't uh, challenged enough. I'm just curious as to why you feel that the, you know, if, if there's such evidence to say this is a better way, significantly financially better, lowered stress and all that, why it hasn't maybe taken as much hold um, as, as it could have, why it hasn't over, you know, replaced the, the other sort of, inefficient attitudes and, and practices. So I'm going to, I'm going to assert that it's a natural human inclination based on everything that we see in the physical world mm-hmm. to look at a project and say, well, we just add manpower. The bridge is not getting built. Fit. A construction project. Mm-hmm. How do you make it go faster? Well, we, we get more people on the project. A ditch needs to be dug. How do you make it? How do you get it done faster? You add more people to it. So we have this this very natural inclination to the idea that added effort translates directed to added effectiveness. Mm-hmm. And in a lot, and the thing is, for a lot of things, that's completely true. 
uh, we scale up by adding uh, adding resources to something. And it's not even necessarily in terms of you know manual labor kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. If you want to build more cars in a, if you want to build more cars per year, what do you do? You build a second factory. Mm-hmm. You literally add resources to it and you double your output for it. So we're used to this this linear or even exponential scale of productivity that comes from adding resources. Mm-hmm. The problem is that programming is not like that. Uh, and the vast majority of people who are in programming themselves don't really think about don't really think of it as being different either, especially non-technical managers. Uh, sometimes even technical managers will see this because it intuitively makes sense to us. We have no experience that has proved otherwise. Clearly, adding effort is the thing to do. But as as Brooks says, the and, and again, this is in chapter two, the Mythical Man Month. The primary problem is. N- when it comes to programming, is not physical effort. Hmm. It is a very ethereal kind of task that depends entirely on, almost entirely on imagination, ideas, and communication. I mean, and because, yeah, because of that, and, and that doesn't scale up. As, that doesn't scale up the same way. But he also, I, I remember, uh, as you're saying that, he, he also mentions that unlike. Uh, say, a more, um, for want of a better word, traditional engineering, maybe the older, say, civil or electrical. Yeah, whereas in those cases, you're working with something very physical. Like once you've cut the wire, the wire's cut. Right. Once you have, uh, say, like poured a, I don't know, a reinforced concrete or whatever it is, the foundations for a bridge, it's there. It's also cost a hell of a lot of money. Yep. You, you know, so it's, it's done. You can't say, oh, actually, I wanted it a bit off to the left and I wanted it thinner, it's, it's, you'd have to bring the whole thing down. Whereas perhaps it's because programming is so malleable, is so much a flexible expression of an idea that that very medium creates its own problem. That's, that's exactly right. Uh, in fact, I'm quoting Brooks here. He says it is a very tractable, it's a very tractable medium. Mm-hmm. And its tractability is what makes it so appealing because you can make it do anything you can think of, or at least you think you can. But then afterwards, that very tractability turns into a negative. Because it can be changed, you're going to change it. Uh, and then you have to discuss how you're going to change it and make sure that the idea, the picture in your mind matches the picture in someone else's mind. Mm-hmm. That involves discussion time. And that discussion time is what is what turns out to be such a huge drag uh, in terms of productivity and getting a program written. Uh, it is It is... An essential feature of the nature of programming. It is not something that can be removed. It is not something that can be avoided. The only thing that can happen is for you to recognize that it exists and that there is no solution for it. Um, now, again, that's a that's broad brushing it. Mm. There are in fact solutions for it, but they are not the solutions anyone wants, and they are not free. Uh, the, for example, uh, if you, you said this earlier, ten people on a project. Uh, the project is supposed to run for four months. You can't cut it in half by adding 10 more people. It's just not going to work. Uh, the, the, you're gonna, first of all, you change the nature of the organization by going from 10 to 20. Hmm. Second of all, the second 10 that get added need to talk to the first 10 to figure out what's going on. You, now you've just dropped productivity to zero mm-hmm. because the first 10 are now telling the second 10 what's going on. The first 10 are not doing any work. Then in addition to that, you've got the coordination costs. Every time anyone wants to make a change to anything, one program does not have to talk to 10. One program now has to talk to 20 hmm. and so on and so on. 
So the only real solutions for a project that is running late, and I don't think we've actually said it, Brooks Law states that adding manpower to a late project makes it later. That's it. That's a period dot into the, at the end of that sentence there. Mm-hmm. Having said that, the only solutions then, if you can't add manpower, there's only two other things you can do. You can either extend the schedule or you can cut features. Those are the only two options available to you. Okay, and you feel that it definitely still holds true today. I One of the great things about the 1995 edition of this book is that Brooks goes back in, in an essay at the end mm-hmm. to see if the propositions that he put forth in 1975 were still true. And uh, it's a sign of his intellectual honesty that he notes a few things in the book did not work the way he thought they did. He made a couple of predictions that turned out not to be true. Mm-hmm. But that one... He stands by even then, and there are studies to prove that although his part, the particular graph of the drop-off of productivity may not be entirely, entirely accurate, mm-hmm. uh, that the drop-off in productivity is significantly sim- – it, it is substantially similar to that. It does exist, uh, and it is something to look out for. Okay. Interesting. There's, there's another bit to it too, and, and again, he, he purposely stated Brooks Law to say adding manpower – makes it later on per- he, he put it that way on purpose so that you would get an idea of how strong this rule is there are, again there are nuances to that i already said a couple of them uh there's another one uh, and that is that you need to look at what the critical path of the project is you need to find what tasks can be parallelized and be completed without any addition additional communication costs so if you've got a project where some subset of it can be completed by an independent team that doesn't have to talk with anyone else, mm-hmm. that's one way you can uh, uh, add, you know, get extra productivity by adding people. Of course, the problem there is you need to spend time figuring out what the parallelizable tasks are. So even that's not free. <laughs> it always seems to come back to that, that one aspect of no matter how good your processes are, no matter what techniques and technologies you're using are, that, that point about communication and... Uh, and planning is always that, uh, always a problem, but but that choke point perhaps. It it is a it is a fundamental essential feature of the nature of our work, and the sooner we realize that and really you know really get it into our minds that that's true, mm-hmm. uh, the sooner we can propagate that not just to other developers but to managers who don't know about it. Mm-hmm. So again, going back to your original question, why don't people know about this? Well, first of all, they haven't read the book. Second of all, they're hugely optimistic. I mean, every developer everywhere thinks that this time there's no more bugs. You know, this time I have written my 10 lines of code and they will work perfectly. And they never do, but they also never remember it next time. <laughs> so there's this, this deeply insufficient pessimism about our own abilities uh, that, that, that helps, helps us to, or rather that prevents that idea from taking hold. Um, Older developers know this intuitively now, but you know most developers age out. So, do you think? And and we were sort of talking, but I guess prior to the interview, that it's that thing as you you hit that point in your career where you're not as as wanted perhaps anymore, or you're not seen as well. He's older, or she's older. Oh, that'll that'll quote cost us so much money. We'll just get a right. few younger ones, and we can just teach them what, the way we want. But with 
they're going to work. They're not going to work a forty-hour day. They're not going to be available twenty-four-seven, and they're going to tell us why we're wrong. And we don't want to hear about why we're wrong. We just want to get it done. <laughs> but ironically, or perhaps tragically, with that, all that 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 knowledge, that experience, that hands-on practical, what um um, what do you call it? Uh, muscle memory that's that's been built up over all those years goes out the door as well. Yep. And so all that learning is like, yeah, bye, bye, bye. And it's like, but how do we keep having this problem? Why do we keep ha- hitting this wall? Why does it never get fixed? Okay, well, look, you're a bit old now. Um, well, look, it's been great working with you, but... And do you think there'd be... I guess the short version of that is, do you think there would be much value or enough value if that kind of attitude changed to say, look, respect the people who've been doing it longer? Yeah, they will tell you what they what they think, but then they should. Okay, they will paycheck to paycheck cost you more than perhaps three or X number of others. But the trade-off you get, you know, all that they have and can give you is, is worth keeping it. And perhaps that may lead to maybe that cultural shift that would help move um, computer engineering forward and, and deal with this issue. I, I, I really don't know. Uh, one of the, ours is a very young profession. Again, Mm. the mythical man month was written in 75 about a a project in 65 computing only really being digital computing only really began a decade or maybe two, depending on how you measure before that. Mm. Uh, so even if we're generous and we say this is a 70, 70 or 80 year old profession, that is the blink of an eye compared to most other professions. Um, so the fact that we don't recognize, and here's another thing, the, the pace of change is so high on the hardware side hmm. that it's very easy to think that, that that ought to apply to the software side as well. So it's very easy to look at a 40, say a 40 year old program or a 45 year old one as I'm, I'm about to be. And say, wow, he's been programming for 20 years or 30 years. In hardware terms, that's what, about a thousand years? I don't know. He can't he can't possibly know anything about what's going on today. The technology has changed, you know. We'll hire we'll hire that guy as uh, someone for legacy stuff, but won't necessarily hire him for, for a new project. And besides, we need to get this done quickly, they're gonna move slow. Um I, I think that those sorts of ideas about l- the way people look at computing mm-hmm. color their ideas about what they think they ought to get when they get a programmer. Uh, and again, I think it's a natural human inclination. Uh, and, I, and like I said, it's, it's due to the youth of the profession. Uh, I think as the profession grows older hmm. and as there are, you'll pardon my, my pessimism here, as there are more critical failures hmm. uh, in programming uh, that, that, uh, desire for, if not age, then careful, cautious experience uh, will become more rewarded, uh, more rewarded than it is now. I don't expect it to become the only thing that people look for because, frankly, there are other constraints. You want something cheap and fast. You don't exactly care if it's right because you need to get the business business up and running. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe that's maybe that's the trade off you want to make. Okay, do you feel that? Hopefully, in, in, with time, we won't sort of keep pushing people out onto the proverbial ice sheet and say, "Well, nice knowing you." Yeah, I, I, and the thing is, I don't, I don't know if it's 
pushing them out on the ice sheet exactly. What, what happens is that younger programmers transition to older programmers, older programmers transition either into teachers or managers, or they find something else to do. Uh, I hope that this podcast will help to serve in the, in the teaching role mm-hmm. to point out to younger developers, you're going to run into certain stuff. Here are some ways you can inoculate yourself against the pain and trouble and despair that you're going to feel because we've all been through this before. Mm-hmm. This guy wrote a book about it in 1975. Nothing has changed. Read this book and it will prepare you for your career. Yeah, I definitely have to agree with you there. After, uh, as much as it, of as much of it as I've read so far, it's sort of, you just look at it and think, it's, it's the proverbial cliche that I wish I'd read this years ago. Yes. Would I have learned from it necessarily? Perhaps not as much, but at least, yeah, it would, I think it would definitely sit in your mind and it would sort of tick there as you come across things going, wait a second, wait a second, wait a second. I've read yeah. this somewhere. And at least if nothing else for the first, uh, we'll say a few experiences as you make those classic mistakes, you can see that and go, right, I'm doing this. So it is still relevant. What can I do now to fix that? I've got some kind of solution to instead of keep remaking those, those mistakes to, to step out and say, okay, there's a better way to handle this. Yeah. The, the, the corollary to that is in order to really, to really fully appreciate this book, you need to have some experience under your belt. Uh, mm-hmm. If you read it in advance, it's very e- if you read it, say, at 20, it would be very easy to look at this and say, well, I'm not that dumb. I would never do that. <laughs> you know, Because there's a saying, I'm going to modify the saying a little bit. Mm-hmm. Experience, experience is the best teacher. And a young developer will have no other. Mm. They, they want to do things themselves. Yes. You did. I did. Everyone is like that. But then after a while, you start running into problems. The reaction that you ought to have is not, wow, I'm the only one having these problems. Everything is new to me. You know, the, the, the world of computing was invented when I started programming. <laughs> you know? It's not like that. Yeah. Uh, your, your reaction when you start running into problems should not be, wow, how do we solve this? And then complain about the, you know, the horribleness of the managerial world. Mm. The solution is to realize that there are generations of programmers before you have run into the same problems. Mm-hmm. And they have left behind artifacts for you to examine. They're called books. You can read them. Very well said. As always, very, very sagely, sir. You're kind to say. Thank you. Ah, I do my best. <laughs> um, so I guess with, with, with taking all that and with, with taking all, all, all that on board, do you feel that... Okay, so let, let's just say someone is, is uh, even maybe say, say six years along and they're open-minded and they have come across the book or maybe they're hearing about it for the first time and they've, they've read it, absorbed it and, and tried to apply it. Would you do you have suggestions for say being say maybe one or two follow-on books that would either be say of equal weight or would definitely be kind of in that same range? Definitely read these. I've got two again that have been hugely helpful to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, the first one is one that Fred Brooks himself mentions in Mythical Man Month. Mm-hmm. It's it's called Peopleware by DeMarco and Lister. Mm-hmm. It is another one of those books that is not about how to program. It is not about coding in the same, in the same way that Mythical Man Month is not about coding. Mm-hmm. It's about the social and managerial aspects of our profession. Uh, so Peopleware is an excellent, excellent follow-up to this. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I have not, 
I have not looked at it in the past year, but it's another one that formed a lot of my opinions about how to organize or, or how to, how to uh, set up organizations to do programming work effectively. Okay. That's one. The other one that I read much more recently is called The Inmates Are Running the Asylum by Alan Cooper which convinced me as a developer that I should not be in charge of design. <laughs> okay. We, the, we as developers are the inmates. Uh-huh. We are running the asylum of program design, especially gra- you know, interface design. Uh-huh. We should not be doing that. All the things that we do wrong in relation to that because we're the only ones with skin in the game. Uh, and Cooper talks about ways to, uh, one, get us out of that business, Yeah. which... Two, uh, gets the right people into the business and gets their skin in the game uh, so that everyone benefits, not least the users. Okay. That, I mean, the, the, the first one sort of intrigues me, but that second one definitely has grabbed my attention. Oh, yeah. That's, that, one's, that one's fantastic. Uh, in fact, if you point it out to graphic designers, uh-huh. uh, about half of graphic designers know about it and will immediately... You gain instant credibility with a graphic designer ah. if you tell them you've read that. Really? Uh, oh, oh, absolutely. Because they understand all the lessons in that book already. They come to it as part of their training. But we as developers do not. Uh, so if you want to have a really good relationship with your graphic designers, tell them that you've read Inmates. Mm-hmm. And if they haven't read it, you now get to look like you know what you're talking about. You can tell them, <laughs> you can tell them to read it. Excellent. All right. Well, like, as soon as I've, I finish the Mythical Man Month, I will... I'll add to my Kindle account, which is ever, ever growing. Um, mm-hmm. I definitely have that book. I mean, if for no other reason, I just, I've always loved the title. Oh, it's a great title. Yeah. It's definitely, definitely catchy. Um, cool. Well, that's been awesome talking about the book. Um, and not wanting to sort of, I guess, sort of, you know, to, to keep ramming at home. Um, we'll move on. And, but before we finish up, what else have you got going on? What, what projects, what, what work is, you know, is this something that, you know, you want to let everybody know about that you've got going on? So I've always got about a half a dozen things going on at any point. Uh, if people are not, or I'll start with the main one. Uh, if you're suffering with a legacy code base mm-hmm. uh, in PHP and it's a mess and it's full of globals and you want to claw your eyes out every time you, you try to work with it because every time you fix one thing over here, something else over there breaks, um, uh, I have written a book to help you out of that problem. It's called Modernizing Legacy Applications in PHP. And it's not sort of a general treatise about, you know, what the problems are and why and why legacy applications suck. It is a specific step-by-step plan of improvement that will help you improve that, that code base uh, in little tiny ways over time so that uh, at the end of a dedicated period of effort, that you can spread out in as many small time chunks as you want, uh, at the end of that, you will end up with something that has gone from a a, a spaghetti mess of globals to something that is auto-loaded, dependency-injected, layer-separated, unit-tested, and Mm -hmm. front-controlled. You'll you'll have yourself a really good application after that Uh, without having had to change the functionality at all. So there's that. Uh, there's a follow-on book called Solving N Plus One Problem, which is modernizing database queries, specific kinds of database queries. Uh, if you are interested in patterns, I've got a paper out there called Action Domain Responder. Uh, you can Google for that. Uh, it is a refinement of the model view controller pattern, mm-hmm. uh, and des- it describes why what we think of as 
model view controller in the web world is not really a not really what model view controller is. Uh, and then action domain responders presented as an alternative to what we think we are doing mm-hmm. uh, to more, to better describe what we're actually doing. Okay. Uh, and of course I'm always available for consulting. If you've got a legacy application and you need someone to just give it the quick once over, uh, I am available at exorbitant rates uh, <laughs> to, to, uh, to look at it for you and tell you uh, what kind of situation you're in. Not a problem. Okay. Well, I'll have links to uh, all the books and the, is it action domain responder, right? Correct. It was uh, originally action domain response, but then I realized that you know it needs to be a, a you know a verb, you know something that builds the response. So a responder in that case. Okay. Well, I'll have links to all those in the show notes and a link to yourself, and it's at PM Jones on Twitter. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. Well, I'll have all that there, so I think there's no excuse why someone couldn't find you. Um. Yeah. All right. Well, it's been really great talking to you um, and chatting about the book. Um, Thanks for coming on the show. Same here. Thank you. Not a problem. So what did you think of the interview and Paul's choice of book? Personally, I think it was, it was bursting with, you know, sort of so many good points, so much values. There's so much in there that we can take away and apply. Um, I don't want to go overboard because I think, you know, we've been going for this interview. This podcast has probably gone a little bit over time. I really encourage you to to check out the book, The Mythical Man Month. I'll have a link to that in the show notes. I'll also have a link to Paul, you know, if you want to find out more information about him and the projects that he's working on and the projects that he's mentioned. Thanks again for tuning in. I really hope you're still enjoying the show. Don't forget, if you really like it, um, drop onto iTunes and give me a rating. The higher the better, it'd be fantastic. Otherwise, I will see you next time in two weeks when the, when episode three comes out. See you then. 